Hello, welcome to Whole Life Rising, a new podcast from inside the Whole Life Movement. Each episode, we will welcome a guest, discuss issues, and share stories from the front lines of Whole Life efforts to safeguard human life and dignity at all stages of life. I'm Robert Christian, the editor of the Whole Life publication Millennial, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Day, the executive director of Democrats for Life of America. Hello, Robert. It's such a pleasure to be here with you again. It's great to see you again. Um, Let's get things started with our first segment in the news. One of the biggest stories in recent weeks, or maybe months, maybe years, decades perhaps, was the Supreme Court's decision to hear a case that centers on a Mississippi law that would prohibit most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. What is the significance of this decision, and do you have any thoughts on what the court might do? This is the case of the decade. It is going to have such an incredible impact, and we can only hope and pray that they do the right thing and rule the way that they should and protect preborn uh, infants. Uh, when we look at the case, banning abortion after 15 weeks is really a mainstream position, especially when you look around the world. When you look at Europe, Europe bans abortion uh, after 13 weeks. So this is going to be a huge opportunity for the pro-life movement to really show that how, the importance of protecting life. Uh, and from a Democrats for Life perspective, we also want to have this uh, include a discussion on how more we can support women who are, do find themselves pregnant and how we can provide real choice to those women instead of saying abortion is the only choice. So I think as we talk about this case, we should talk about the real struggles that women face and the real impact of abortion on their lives. So I think we have a good chance of having a positive outcome on this when you look at the justices currently serving. You know, even if we lose John Roberts on this one, uh, we still have other justices who are likely to vote to protect life. So this is going to be a big challenge to precedent, and it's going to be a, a hard-fought battle on both sides of this issue. And I'm sure Democrats for Life will do an amicus brief and really lay out the democratic reasons why these human rights are worthy of protection. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Justice Roberts votes. He sort of opposed the kind of incrementalist approach in the past, but you have to wonder if he's been waiting for this big challenge to precedent, right, to take on what Casey established with viability as that sort of bright red line and say, no, that, that test doesn't work. And that would reformulate everything. And I mean, it wouldn't be inconceivable to see him actually draft the opinion, I think, if they were to make this this massive change. I would be very nervous about him drafting, <laughs> considering his position on June Medical when he flip-flopped on the issue. He was he voted one way in the Texas case and then flipped on June Medical. And he should have been consistent on, on that issue. So I, I do worry about him and how mm-hmm. he will come out in this. But, um, you know, we can hope that he will do the right thing on this one and protect life. Mm-hmm. And since they've accepted it, I think a lot of pro-lifers, a lot of people that are pro-choice, think that there is a really strong possibility that we'll get a big change, right? Because the lower courts... There was a consensus in the lower courts that this law violated the standard established in Roe and Casey, yet they've made the decision to take this case. Yes, I, this is a good opportunity to educate America on what Roe is and what it does and the impact 
because you know when you look at the impact of say Roe v. Wade, it was, is overturned. It's not going to be as earth shattering as some people might think, because what it will do is it will throw the issue back to the states. So states like New Jersey, California, and New York that basically have no protections for women and preborn life, they'll continue to to not protect women and preborn life. And other states will continue that have more regulation of abortion, trying to keep women safe, will continue to do that and continue to protect women in the preborn life. Mm -hmm. So I think it will allow other regulation and maybe further limits um, on, say, like a 20, 20 week ban or a 15 week ban or, you know, and, and mm-hmm. bringing, bringing the United States more consistent with the rest of the world. Yeah, right. Because we don't expect um, the court to rule that unborn children have 14th Amendment protections. Like maybe Clarence Thomas or one or two of the justices might be inclined to rule that way, but the majority of them are going to go in the sort of states' rights direction, it seems. Yeah, I would, I would think that that would. And again, the states like New Jersey and New York, who have the highest abortion rates in the nation, not much is going to change there if Roe v. Wade is overturned mm-hmm. because they all already don't provide any protection for women in preborn life. They pay for abortion, in fact, uh, for women and, and, view, and view that as the best choice for women. Say, so we'll pay for your abortion. You shouldn't have the baby, which is, uh, you know, very, um, you know, bad policy. And we're hoping to change that. Again, you know, we've been fighting the New Jersey law to try to make, um, you know, bill the new jersey bill to try to make abortion even more available uh, to women when again the double the national uh, abortion rate Mm -hmm. another big issue in recent months has been voter suppression efforts by the republican party when we spoke to justin gibney on the podcast he encouraged republicans to try to appeal to black voters and others rather than trying to exclude more people from the process but Unfortunately, they seem to have chosen the latter strategy in a number of states. This week, over 100 scholars of democracy expressed their concern that these laws are a betrayal of our democratic commitments and constitute a real threat to democracy, particularly in conjunction with people that are are simply failing to accept the 2020 election results. Now, Senator Manchin has expressed his desire to better secure voting rights, but he's also emphasized the importance of these types of efforts being bipartisan. How likely do you think it is that Democrats or that Congress is able to do anything to strengthen voting rights? At this point, I don't think they have the votes to do it in the Senate because they would need Senator Manchin and uh, you know others to and the whole Democratic caucus to remain firm. And people like Senator Manchin really do want a more bipartisan approach to governing. And you know we've seen him hold up uh, several bills to try to to move um, move the needle and try to bring in some bipartisan support. I mean the House obviously has the votes to do it and did. So, um, but I think it'll be very tricky in the Senate, especially with the the 60 vote threshold, yeah. and you have to overturn the filibuster, and uh, you know there's there's many hurdles there. And Senator Manchin doesn't really want to overturn the filibuster. filibuster. And Kristen Cinema too from Arizona, mm-hmm. Senator Cinema, she does not want to either. So I think it's really important for the Democratic Party to find ways to strengthen voting rights and try to work across the aisle, uh, however difficult it may be, but to keep this issue up for discussion and really make the effort to uh, do the right thing and, and mm-hmm. make sure that everyone who has the right to vote can. Do you think they'll 
look at maybe filibuster reform, whether that's dropping that to 55 or where they actually have to do the filibuster, read Dr. Seuss on the floor yeah, or whatever yeah. to keep it going. Yeah, I would like to see that again. The, you know, the long, long filibusters of reading, uh, reading novels on the floor to keep it going. Yeah, I think I think any filibuster reform is going to be very difficult to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I do believe that until you can get, um, you know, Kristen Cinema and Joe Manchin to, to uh, movement on that. Those are the two that you really have to convince mm-hmm. uh, to, to pass it. I think there's a, a lot of opposition to uh, obviously on the Republican side. But, you know, one thing that I think the Democrats have to keep in mind, though, is, you know, it could flip really easily in the Senate. Of course. And then you're in major trouble um, because if the Republicans take control and, you know, the next presidential election isn't that far off either. And you have to keep in mind that this is why we have so many Republican judges right now is because the Democrats overturned the uh, the threshold for judges. And so Donald Trump was able to push through, I don't know, he record-breaking numbers of judges. I was talking to one of my students today and she was mad that uh, President Obama couldn't run for a third term. She's like, this doesn't make any sense. We should be able to make this choice. And then I said, well, what if President Trump had um, been elected to two terms? Would you think it's it's cool for him to run for a third term? She's like, uh, um, I think I see your point now. I'm like, yeah, it sounds good when you love the person. Um, but when it's someone that maybe that you don't like very much, Uh, you probably don't want that. Same with the filibuster, right? If it's holding your policies up, it's extraordinarily frustrating. Um, But it does offer protection if the other party is able to really um, get control of Congress and the presidency. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, now let's move on to our question of the month. Our question this month, based on President Biden's recent decision to exclude the Hyde Amendment from the budget proposal, is, are we looking at the end of the Hyde Amendment? I don't believe so at all. I, you know, in the Senate, particularly again with that 60 vote threshold, and we have three Democrats who indicated that they support the Hyde Amendment. So, and they voted for it just a few weeks ago during the COVID relief bill. Uh, in the House side, we have eight Democrats who voted for the Hyde Amendment prior, uh, last time we voted, which, which was nine years ago or 10 years ago when we voted on the Obamacare, or maybe it's longer than that now. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, you know, I, that is good. Um, you know, the bad part is the the president did not include it in his budget, and um, I think the other the other thing that we have going for us on Hyde is its mainstream opinion. Um, most a majority of Americans support the Hyde Amendment and preventing taxpayer funding of abortion. And also, we are working with a we are working with a broad coalition of legislators and uh, religious leaders to send messages to Congress and the leadership that, you know, you know Hispanics, African-Americans, majorities do oppose taxpayer funding of abortion. One of the interesting things is when you talk about, when you look at states, as I mentioned earlier, New Jersey, New Jersey pays for abortion. They have double the national average of the abortion rate and targets minority communities. So mm-hmm. paying for abortion for poor women, for minority communities, does nothing to help the underlying problems uh, that these families are facing. So we really need to turn it around and offer real choice to women and support for families. And this money that you want to spend for abortion, how about if we put it toward child care? How about if we put it toward health care? How about if we t- 
put it toward diapers and helping these families with their children and the challenges that they face. You know, let's look at the schools in these in the neighborhoods. You know, there are so many ways that we can help families, and paying yeah. for abortion is never, never should never be the solution. Yeah, and and a number of women in these communities they don't want to choose abortion, right? There are many pro-life women, and that's not a real solution. And it's trying to take a shortcut instead of doing the real work of addressing poverty and these other structural injustices. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What's the process like for that budget becoming law and the Hyde Amendment's role in that? So the president just put out his budget, which is extremely late. So the process is way behind. The uh, House will be uh, moving shortly. Uh, they will be putting forth their appropriations bills. So there's 13 appropriations bills all need to be voted on. So that process is starting. So I think, you know, June, July timeframe, the committees will be holding hearings and markups and uh, moving that process along. Uh, unfortunately, the chairwoman of the Labor HHS committee, Rosa Delora, is a strong abortion rights advocate. And she mm -hmm. has said that she wants to remove Hyde. So we're going to have to go through the committee process and, you know, hopefully someone will, I'm, I'm assuming that someone will uh, offer an amendment to put that back in. There are several members on the Appropriations Committee on the Democratic side who supported Hyde in the past. You know, Tim Ryan uh, is one of them. And so we need to really push those members to uh, can remain true to their previous votes on these and remain true to their constituents. Their constituents overwhelmingly oppose taxpayer funding of abortion. So they really need to represent the views of their constituents and not the abortion lobby. So, and then on the Senate side, it's gonna the same process, but we have um, three Democratic senators who have support the Hyde Amendment. So it's gonna be trickier over there. And then the two, you know, the two will have to meet in conference and, and duke it out. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think this is gonna be a very long process and I'm foreseeing an omnibus bill on September 30th or, you know, a CR continuing resolution to keep the government open. And it's going to be a big fight. But you're confident. I, you know, I feel, I feel confident that we can, we can protect the Hyde Amendment, but we can't sit back and think that that's going to happen. We have to fight. Yeah. We're, we're, no complacency. We have a, yeah, no complacency. We're working on a, you know, a five, five to eight week plan of, um, that we're going to unveil in the next week or two of pushing, uh, targeting these members, these eight members, um, plus a few more like Brendan Boyle and Matt Cartwright and Connor Lamb from Pennsylvania. They all represent very pro-life districts. And, um, you know, Connor Lamb says he's pro-life. You know, he should vote that way. You, you can't mm -hmm. hide behind. I, I'm personally pro-life, but not vote that way, especially when we're talking about pre-born innocent life. You know, so vote your conscience, vote, vote what you believe. Don't hide behind the abortion lobby and their money. Our guest this month is Gloria Purvis. Gloria is the host of the Gloria Purvis podcast produced in collaboration with America Media. A radio and media personality, she has appeared in various media outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, PBS NewsHour, Catholic Answers Live, and EWTN News Nightly, and hosted Morning Glory, an international radio show. But beyond this, she's known as someone who takes her Catholic faith very seriously, including her commitment to the life of all people, born and unborn. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Such a privilege to join you all. I'm very excited to, to talk with you. It's just great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. 
so I listened to the first couple episodes of the podcast and I enjoyed it a great deal. Can you tell us a little bit about the podcast and why you chose to work with America Media? Oh, yeah. So the Gloria Purvis podcast is basically the thing. I have a lot of freedom there. And when America Media approached me, they weren't like, look, you can't talk about this. Look, we're kind of uneasy. They were like, it's your microphone. Go ahead. We just want to support you. And I was like, Yahoo, <laughs> let's do this. And so um, and also knowing that there are a number of perspectives and people in the church that would like to be heard. Right. And I keep thinking of the Holy Fathers, um, uh, Pope Francis. Do you guys remember back in, was it 2017, we had a convocation of the Catholic Church and the bishops all met down on Orlando and we were talking about the joy of the gospel and one of the things that the Holy Father was telling people is go to the margins, mm -hmm. go to the margins, go to the margins. And I'm hoping I'm able to do that with this podcast to bring up conversations that are important but aren't necessarily widely discussed in Catholic media. Um, and also to show people that you can have conversations with people with whom you do not agree, but you can do that respectfully. So I'm hoping that can to model some of that way of, you know, dialoguing will happen on the podcast too. Okay, so on that on the first episode you talk about the murder of George Floyd, which is now one year yeah. later. So do you see that as a seminal event in your own life or in the country's oh, reckoning yeah. with racial injustice? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I would say like what what happened with George Floyd sort of like just broke open a lot of uh, discussions in this country. And at the time that I was doing a radio show, um, you know, I was having discussions and talking about things that maybe some of my listeners, it, from their perspective, had not heard those perspectives before. And, um, and I think they should have, because if we're Catholic and we believe about the dignity, the dignity of the human person, policing needs to reflect a respect for the dignity of the human person as well, even if, or especially because you could be dealing with people who are on the margins. You know, they don't have the best lawyers, don't have the best income, don't, you know, all those things that make them probably the most powerless in our society, or even the fact that they're under suspicion. Maybe they have done some criminal activity. But that does not absolve the police of their duty to preserve that person's life and also to treat them with respect and dignity. And um, that was not a very popular talking point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nonetheless, I was like, come on, guys, our faith needs our faith needs to be the lens through which we see things. Our faith needs to influence stuff, not allegiance to left, right, all that kind of stuff. That that was just, I was like, y'all, come mm. on. We believe the dignity of the human person. And to me, this is a big test of it. If, it. if you are going to say people who you think are less than or are criminal or this and that and the other don't deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, you really show how little you believe what you say you believe when you're making defense for you know other uh, marginalized or threatened groups like people who are... Uh, at the end of life, you know, we rightfully talk about why euthanasia and physician suicide is not the way. Same thing with life in the womb. We talk about why abortion is not the way. Police brutality, beating people down, killing people is not the way. Do I really have to say this? You know, <laughs> apparently so. Yes, I do. Um, and I think it's important that it, it that it is said and and 
and repeat it until we mm-hmm. get it. You, you know, you, you talked about how you know your fellow Catholics, fellow pro-lifers responded to this killing and to these issues in general. How were you expecting these groups to react, and did that did reality match those expectations? I guess what I didn't expect was the snark mm-hmm. and the pushback and the the um oh what's the other thing i'm gonna say just saying things that repeating uh secular pundits that were basically that that were that were preachers of the anti-gospel i mean there was one very well-known person i don't even like to repeat the name because i feel like i'm calling out the <laughs> devil sometimes when I, do that. I mean i'm not i'm not throwing shade but i legit feel like everything that this person says and does is just so dishonest and and marshals out uh beliefs that are contrary to what we believe um this person did a video and so many catholic people sent me the video saying what do you think and i just thought how could you watch this odious video and and you yourself not be sickened by using the same tropes the same strategy the same talking points that the pro-abortion lobby uses to dehumanize the child in the womb This person used that same kind of strategy to dehumanize George Floyd. And um, and I thought, how could you miss that? And um, so, yeah, how easily people who otherwise would be rightfully so fervent defenders of the dignity of the human person were unable to apply that in the situation with George Floyd. And that really I felt like was I in a toxic relationship all this time and I didn't know I was like sleeping with an abuser you know what I mean I kind of was like what you know but but here's the thing here's the thing I felt like I wasn't the one that betrayed our values they were so I was not leaving my relationship with the pro-life movement you know what I mean I was not leaving my relationship with my Mm -hmm. faith I was going to be faithful to that because it's what I believe. And I hope that uh, that they will then start to believe it, at least once they have it held up to them. Like, here's how you're you're not being consistent <laughs> with what we believe. Come on, y'all. We can do better. Yes, I can to- totally relate to you on that, Gloria. <laughs> being, being I bet a- you can. <laughs> I know you can. Being a pro-life for the whole life Democrat <laughs> is not an easy road to, to travel. Look. And I and I am glad you do take it. I'm glad you model that for other people that they can too, because that's what's so necessary. Right? We walk this road together, Gloria. Yes, Indeed. and so you know, and I love I've loved working with you over uh, the past couple months and talking on many issues. But the the issues that you know, of racial injustice uh, and uh, abortion seem to be uh, very central to some of the issues that you talk about. So are these mm-hmm. interconnected and is racial injustice oh, yeah. a life issue uh, or are there some common oh, thread yeah. running through these <laughs> issues and, and how you yes. approach them? Mm-hmm. Look, this is what I tell people. I say the pro-racial justice and pro-life movement are twin sisters. And at the core of both movement is the animating principle of the dignity and respect of the human person. And for some reason, people want to make them mortal enemies. And I'm like, they're not. It's, it's, they are the same in that the basis of them is the dignity of the human person. And if we understand that, 
I think we shouldn't be like, oh, I can't talk about abortion because then da, da, da. Oh, I can't talk about racial justice. I'm like, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, you know? And I think it's, um, I think it is to cede a level of power and control to merely a political party when that's not the case. They, they don't have to be and are not in, in contradiction to each other. And, you know, some people say, well, you know, all those progressives da, 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 or all those conservatives. Da, da, da. I'm like, you know what? If the truth is the truth is the truth, there's a place for you and me in there. And we could use our voices to speak the truth about racial justice, to speak the truth about, uh, you know, the, the dignity of the child in the womb and her mother. OK, that's the other thing. What I find is that in these movements, they'll try to pit the mother against the child. And then racial justice movements, as it pertains to just policing, they will put all the policing against uh, as if you can't, if, if you support racial justice, you're mm -hmm. anti-police. I'm like, no, we're anti-bad police. Just like I'm, I'm pro-life, it doesn't mean I'm against women's medicine. I'm against bad women's medicine. You know, and I'm against the, the lie that abortion is medicine, that it is therapeutic. It's none of those things. And I'm also against the idea that brutalizing people is policing. That is not. That is criminal behavior. And so I make those distinctions and it doesn't mean I'm anti-police. We make those distinctions about women's health care. It doesn't mean we're anti-women's health care or that we're anti-women. So... Yeah, I feel like within the pro-life movement, you know, sometimes we think of ourselves through the prism of past movements like the abolitionists, the civil rights movement and things mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. But if we think of ourselves that way, then we better be caring about racial justice today, and, right? Or otherwise it's kind of a delusion, isn't it? To like think, oh, in the past I would have been <laughs> yeah. on the front lines against slavery like I am against abortion today. But you're like, where right. are you today on racial justice? Right. Where where you have plenty of chance to have a witness. Where are you today on racial justice? And granted, you know, it may be that some people are like, I'm pro racial justice and my energies and stuff are spent mm -hmm. um, with life in the womb. That's fine. But you don't need to be snarky or speaking out against people's efforts. Um to seek racial justice or even to do the to deny that racial injustice on a grand scale can exist in right. our country that that to me i'm like anybody that believes we've got what more than 30 years of industrial level organized abortion in this country can turn around and say that there can't be any organized racism Mm -hmm. or a system a system of it to me yeah. i'm just like what is it about the sin of racism that's so unique that it can't you know uh it, it can't have seeped into and infected other things it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me on on your podcast you talked about um lynching postcards oh, yeah. which is something i think a lot of white americans don't know about maybe i'm wrong and we just witnessed the 100th uh, anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, which yeah. many people online were saying, I never studied in this school. I just learned about this two years ago. Oh, yeah. How much of the challenge to addressing this systemic racism is the fact that many Americans, particularly white Americans, don't know the history of our country? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Um, it's, it's a huge part of it. Uh, and, and I won't say this person's name, but there's a particular priest that gave a homily on lynching that was so cringeworthy and false and frankly tended to 
um, elicit the kind of attitude against that injustice. Uh, oh, I, elicit an attitude that you would not expect a priest to elicit from people about lynching. The peace, priest basically said, well, white folks will lynch too. And, and more white people gave up their lives in the civil rights movement. Um, no, no, more white people gave up their lives in the civil war to free black people. And as if somehow, therefore, you can't talk about the evil of lynching because, you know, he took a racialized terror that was targeted against the black community lynching and compared it to the randomized violence of lynching that may have happened to some white people in their own personal interpersonal disagreements. That's a whole different thing from an organized pre-planned event to instill terror on the black community as a means of social control, number one. Number two, then to say a greater number of white men lost their lives during the Civil War and implied that therefore we shouldn't be upset or consider the history of lynching or the fact that it still sometimes happens today um, and be grateful toward these. And I was like, excuse me, black people fought for their freedom and have been fighting against their own oppression since the time they got brought here. Okay, so to act like we were some hapless people needing these men to die for us and therefore we got to be extra grateful was just so upsetting, number one. And then number two, it totally erased the whole black liberation and freedom struggle during our enslavement. And, and number three, I'm not going to be licking boots for, for people for something that should have been done centuries ago to fight against slavery. And so seeing all that misrepresentation mm -hmm. of not only history, but also theology, um, the, I mean, the, the things that the priest was conveying in his homily are also, to me, were just so contrary to um, respecting a human person and the oppression and evil that they had to deal with, right? And so... At putting, and, and I've had to have these discussions with people. This homily was it had so twisted so many souls that over and over again, people were saying to me, lynching wasn't a big deal. And, you know, why aren't you grateful? I mean, I've had some fools say to me, why aren't you grateful? See, you black people aren't even grateful for all the white people to die to free you. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> Let me stop you right there, homeboy. But that's the kind of thing where I think, yeah, history having these discussions are so important, especially when you have members of the cloth, you know, misrepresenting that. And I, I had to say to them, this priest is not a trustworthy source for lynching history or for that matter, any history on black Americans, you know, just no. Yeah, that just denies the proper context for lynching and its role yes. in Jim Crow in institutionalizing yeah. white supremacy and, and stripping black people of the civil rights that were established in yep. reconstruction like it's impossible to disentangle those two even if there were white people that uh were lynched maybe some of them because they were right there were, i think italian americans yeah. that were lynched mm -hmm. uh in louisiana some of them for violating the color line oh yeah because of too. their relationships with uh black people yes um it just totally ignores that what a central role it played in upholding that. Well, yeah. and, and here's the thing too, Robert, one of the things he said is, and you know, they were accused of rape or robbery. So it was the death penalty by mob, never a good thing, but it no. was such a, the way in which it was said, it was to, to really in a, in the most horrible way, sort of like 
well, they had it coming because yep. they were, you know, and, and then the little wink and a nod of mm -hmm. never a good thing. But the, the so it just it, it was just awful. It was just an awful thing. And I was sad to see that that would happen during the Holy Mass. And I was also sad to see how many sheep have been spiritually abused and led astray by that false teaching, that false witness. And also what it did is it, it, it served to harden people's heart about the real evil of lynching and that it was a real thing with real consequence on the black community. I mean, uh, somebody was saying, well, if lynching was so bad in the black community, how can you explain this? I said, well, if lynching was so pervasive, like you're saying in the white community, where are the leaders of the anti-lynching movement who are white? Where's your Ida B. Wells? Where are all these? I said, because it wasn't the same thing. A lynching of an Italian-American was not meant to terrorize all of the white community like a lynching of black people was and how how um, how pervasive it was. And frankly, we don't have a lot of counts of all the lynchings because the way in which, frankly, local law enforcement was often involved. You know, that's it's just a it's a it's a it's a scary thing to learn about, to read about um, and to hear about um, whether you're reading it in books or your or your elder family members are talking about it. You know, this is real life people's lived experiences not that long ago. And if we don't think that that still has some kind of that evil has consequences and effects today, you know, so, yeah, people just don't know. So the more we talk about it, hopefully people's minds will open and more importantly, their hearts will soften and that we can together do what we need to do to expel our country of the demon of racism. Well, this is why it's so important that uh, people listen to your podcast, too. <laughs> because, I mean, just the way that your, the, your passion and your explaining and getting people to understand is so important now. And I do feel like people are waking up mm -hmm. and reading more and learning more. And so we just need to keep talking about it and, and making sure that, that people understand this history. And, and, and let me say one thing, too. When we talk about this history, this is not an attack on white people. You know, I hear that some, I was like, what are you talking about? This is so we can understand our history so we can all get rid of this stuff, get rid of the vestiges or get rid of all, any of these kinds of attacks against the dignity of the human person. And might I add, when you look at the history, you see the evil done against black people, but what you also see is how the white people swayed and brought and, 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 and embroiled in that kind of evil, how debased they themselves were. I mean, if you look at that video of George Floyd and don't see Officer Chauvin as someone is behaving well beneath what he was meant to be, you're missing the point. It degrades both people. I mean, that is not what God made him to be. And I'm saying this as somebody that's a believer, this is a Catholic, so a lot of my faith is coming through here. But that is not what God made him to be. And further, when we entrusted him, when the society entrusted a police officer with the legal authority to discharge their duties, he violated his, our public trust. We gave them the legal authority to act legally, not like murderers. And so if we can't see he violated the public trust, debased himself, and also what happens to power when someone has power over someone else and doesn't see them as a, as a human person, 
we see what abuses, gross abuses could happen. So there's a lesson here for all of us. And we should be asking ourselves, what is it about the culture of policing in that instance that empowered him to feel like he could do that and do that publicly and do that without any real recognition that there are going to be consequences or that there could be consequences. So. So this, this brings me up to asking a question about your, uh, your show on uh-huh. when you were on EWTN uh-huh. and when you did bring up the racial justice issues to uh-huh. the forefront, you know, and shortly thereafter you were no longer there. Do you, yeah. and you know, do you think that's what ultimately led to the end of your time? Well, I can only tell you what was said to me. Okay. Now let me, let me just back this up. We had weekly meetings on our radio show every week with an executive at EWTN. We'd have a meeting to go over the, the show, the week. Da-da. Over and over again, we were told, excellent show, it's wonderful, da-da-da-da-da. So if that's the feedback you're getting, it is a complete and utter shock when you're told, you know, and this is what we were told, we annually review shows and today's your last show. And when I said, why, why? We annually review shows and today's your last show. No real excuse, you know, no real explanation in my opinion. And, and you and you back that up against, but every week we've met for 52 weeks and we've never gotten any feedback from, you know, so it was a surprise, you know, you can draw your own conclusions as to what, why, but I can just tell you that that's what happened. I will also say that from the time that I critiqued candidate Trump, and also, what was that dude done in Alabama that was 30 years old trying to date 13 years old, 13 year old people? And he thought Is that it was Roy Moore, good. Roy Moore. And I was like, yo, uh-uh. I don't care if homeboy is pro-life. That's a red flag, y'all. <laughs> Granted, he's not 30 <laughs> anymore, <laughs> but he's a grown man and he's he's defending his decision to go after young girls oh but i had the mother's permission dude sit down i don't care if you pull life <laughs> sit all the way down and so you know when i critiqued that i received a lot of hate mail a lot of hate mail and it just amped up more and more when i started talking about unjust policing and what just policing should look like and george floyd and racial justice so the kind of hate mail really really amped up um that um that i received at the network from self-identified faithful pro-life devout catholics mm-hmm. so i can just tell you there was a change <laughs> those kinds of things changed well that that partisanship just invades right invades their brains and takes over you talk about them sort of being faithful and yeah. pro-life and every, but in that moment they're just maybe hardcore republicans that yeah. want their candidate to win and, and if you back that up with what the church was also experiencing uh, around sexual abuse dealing with all these stories of sexual abuse of men in the seminary and dealing with the sexual abuse of minors we're going to defend some dude that was trying to rap the 13 year old girls when he was 30 Y'all, come on now. Are we not? I mean, really? Right. I, I just couldn't. And that was the thing. I said, these are the kinds of, uh, when we when we are willing to jettison other things that are morally abhorrent, right? All for the cause of, you know, it was really about temporal power. Let me just put it like that. These people were looking for temporal power and to put someone in office that clearly was unfit because of other behaviors, but they're willing to overlook all that for the um, 
for what they thought was the prize of having a pro-life person in office. And I was like, but, you know, being pro-life isn't just that one issue. It does involve all these other things that builds a culture of life and respect for the human person. And I just didn't think his public witness showed that. Your faith seems to play a big role, a central role in your life and how you mm-hmm. approach all these social and political issues. Can you talk a little bit about how it shapes your overall worldview? Oh, yeah. I mean, I really think that every person is somebody, if you think about it, what we want is we want everybody to go to heaven. So all these people I don't know are people I hope to spend eternity with because I want them to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. And when you have that kind of worldview, it does change how you, I don't know, how you see people, even people who are doing things unjust, right? Who are behaving unjustly, who are in the grips of evil. And um, so, so, so it just, I don't know. I sometimes I thank the Lord. I was like, Lord, really? I don't want to fast and I don't want to pray for this person because I don't like them. (laughs) 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 And then, you know, you just see his eyes looking back at you like, really? And then you, then you remember, yeah, I'm a sinner and I do all these bad things. And you took up the cross and died for me. I enough said, I will hush up, you know, and I look at all the ways the Lord invites us to love other people. I look at all the ways that he invites us to die to to self. You know, I look at all the ways that, you know, we have opportunities to, uh, embrace humility, you know? Um, yeah. So that, that generally that does it, it shape how I see the world. And so like a lot of people were, um, were, were like when, um, when Guadalupe radio network dropped, uh, morning glory. And then when EWTN opted not to renew it, I think people, wanted me to like come out with a flamethrower, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But I did. I, I was just like, okay, God, what's next? What do you want next? Do you want me to, you know, whatever you want, Lord. And, and that sort of just, uh, shapes who I am and how I, how I see things. Um, and I will say, yeah, I mean, I'm, I only said the EWTN and sh- told you the plain truth of what happened with it. Um, do I want to blow them up? No, nothing like that. I'm just, you draw your own conclusions. I'm just telling you the plain truth of what happened. I'm not bad mouthing them or anything like that, which some people would love me to do. Some people who don't like me (laughs) would love me to do, (laughs) but that's just not, that's just not who I am. God has a plan for me. um, And I just hope as he reveals portions of it, that I could say yes to it. That's it. That's that's a very good uh, way to live life is just put things in God's hands and, uh, you know, follow his lead. Indeed. Indeed. And I will say this, Kristen and Robert, that doesn't come without a share of suffering. (laughs) Yes, I do know. I do know. You know, and hardship. And I think sometimes, um, Mm. and, and it's, you know, I've been through hardships in my life, you know, way, way other things outside of this. And, um, and that's the other thing too. I think as someone that does have faith, I don't think my life is going to be free of suffering. I just hope that I have, God gives me the grace to, to embrace whatever cross comes my way and to bear it with love. Like he bear, he bore his for me. So, um, and that's a work in progress. You know, I'm a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. And so, um, I don't want anybody listening to think I'm being, 
glib about suffering. I'm not. It ain't fun. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know. But um, but that's this is a part of our walk in faith. At least my walk in faith that the suffering will come. You know, just it just does. Yeah. So you know, speaking of faith. So do you think, uh, as a black Catholic in America, is your you, you do you have a unique experience compared to other Catholics and or yes. other black Protestants? <laughs> yes. 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 And yes. <laughs> well, um, yeah. I, well, I think um, both, as black Catholics, we do have a specific history within the church. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a pretty one. <laughs> yeah. When you when you read about how, um, you know, uh, that there was no American Catholic bishop that spoke out in favor of abolition. Okay, there were American yeah. Catholic bishops that owned slaves. There's an American Catholic bishop, Bishop England. Actually, I went to Bishop England High School in Charleston, South Carolina, and Bishop John England wrote to the Secretary of State, um, Secretary Forsyth, Forsyth, defending slavery and saying that, um, was it in Apostolic? Apostolata Supremo. Basically, it was saying that the that the Pope's letter said, "Yeah, you can't go and kidnap people from their own land," but he didn't say a word about our own domestic slavery as we have it. Mm-hmm. So it's still okay that we have the people in bondage we have now that we could still enslave for life all their offspring. You know, that's fine. <laughs> I mean, when you read that, I'm like, what? And it was just ironic that I went to that high school and actually was president of my senior class. And our yearbook was called The Miscellany, which was the name of the newspaper the Bishop England published. I mean, talk about the irony there, yeah. you know? Um, and then after slavery, to see that the bishops did not, you know, wholeheartedly come and say, we want to evangelize uh, the black community and those who were already Catholic, you know, keep them within the church. It, it basically fell to black laymen like Daniel Rudd to evangelize. And then you had Augustus Tolton, Venerable Tolton become a priest. I mean, it was so bad. He could not, there was no diocese in the United States that would accept him into the seminary. He had to go to Rome to become a priest. Then when he came back, the kind of abuse that he received from his fellow white priests and from the white laity was just bananas. Okay, so just there's a lot of history here. I don't need to go into the rest of it. But um, the black experience in the Catholic Church is different. Nana, I'm sure, ask if any of your family had to wait until all the white people received communion before they could receive communion. No. Ask if any of your family was turned away from, you know, being able to even consider becoming a priest because they were black. No. It's, it's yeah, it's decidedly a different experience. Um, and yet, black Catholics persevere in the faith. Some people say we have an uncommon faith. And that's because what we believe we believe it. We believe the faith. We believe what it says about the human person and invite other people to believe it too. Mm-hmm. Um, and also um, having our unique experience, though, doesn't mean that we feel any less a part of the universal church. I feel very much at home in the Catholic church. Was it different from a Protestant, right? The Protestants mm-hmm. pastor, whoever their pastor is, that's their little Pope, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know what I mean? That That's yep. who their Pope is. And they have a much smaller community of their particular church, right? In some cases, if they travel on Sunday, they don't go to church because they're not in their church community. Wherever I travel, there's a Catholic church community that I could go and be a part of. Now, granted, some places I get there and they might be like, who was that? And, but that's okay. <laughs> they can be like that. I'm like, Jesus knows I'm here. He recognized me. That's all. You know, He invited me. I'm here. <laughs> you know? 
So yeah, there is a particular experience of being a black Catholic in the United States that I think is unique. So, um, cause I know some people are like, why are you call yourself black Catholic? That's divisive. And I said, well, until you run up on all these Polish people that were jumping up and down when John Paul II was made a Pope and tell them identifying <laughs> as Polish Catholic is divisive, <laughs> you know, you need to step off. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's nothing wrong. Polish Catholic, Irish Catholic, French yeah. Catholic. It's yeah. all good. We're part of the yeah. universal church with our cultures, our experiences, but all the same faith and the same, you know, belief in, in, yeah. in, in, in teachings of church. When I listen to you, um, I think about how you have such a thoughtful, coherent commitment to personalism, this belief in human dignity and the nature of the human person. Are there particular figures, intellectuals, saints, activists that have really shaped your thought and helped you to sort of gain this really very coherent worldview that you can apply to issue after issue after issue? No, you know, actually, it was a mystical experience I had during mass that sort of, um, I like to sort of like jack me up <laughs> for lack of a better word, <laughs> you know. So like, I, you know, I converted to Catholicism, Catholicism when I was twelve, and um, then when I was, um, and that was from a mystical experience actually at adoration, um, and I was blessed that my non-Catholic parents were like, okay, you're gonna be a Catholic and you're gonna be a Catholic. So I went to mass by myself on Sundays wow. and holy days. And yeah, it just, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother story. And, I, and I'm thankful to yeah. God uh, for that. And the way in which God was so gracious with my mother and my family for that is just a whole nother beautiful story. Right. But um, so when I was uh, an adult and I was married, I was saying the creed and get to, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life. And um, I had a chastisement. It can only be called a mini chastisement because I heard a voice say, are you lying? Are you blaspheming? How can you believe in the Holy Spirit? How can you believe? Um, did he say, did he say I am the giver of life? I can't remember how it went, but it was all so quick. But um, basically I was challenged on my belief there and understanding that when I say what I say during mass, I'm in the presence of God himself in the entire celestial court. And what you say at Mass has consequences and meaning. And how could I, at the moment of judgment, expect to receive the gift of eternal life when I'm doing nothing to actively defend God's gift of life on earth? And so it's like that immediate knowing. And all this happened in a half of a second, even though it seemed like a much longer time period to me. And I fell to my knees during Mass and my husband turned and looked at me. And he was like, what are you doing? And I said, I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. <laughs> and, you know, we hadn't even finished the creed at that point. But it struck me so hard that it, it, it opened up in, in me this hunger that I, I can't describe for the beauty of the human person mm. and understanding more about the human person. And God and his generosity would put things in front of me that would just like stick with me. So like Genesis 1, 26 and 27, let us make man in our image, reminded me whose image we are made in and how, because of that, there's something so special um, that was given to us to be made in the image and likeness of God. And guess what? Every single person receives that. Everybody. And there's nothing I can do or you can do or any law that anybody could pass that could rob somebody of that profound, inherent dignity. And it's just um, that has uh, that moment has has changed me. 
Yeah, that's that's remarkable. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, so. He yeah. did it because I'm stupid. <laughs> he, was like, he was like, this little dummy is not going to get it any other way, so I need to bop her on the head. <laughs> so I just think he was like, she is real dumb. So let me just smack her around a little bit and give her a wake-up call. And so I've been thankful to God for his, um, his patience and his mercy um, with me. Um, and... and uh, so yeah, that that really is what is the heart of it, I guess I could say. <laughs> yeah, and I hey, but let me just say this: I don't recommend anybody get a mini chastisement. I'll just put it to you like that. <laughs> it was a really small one, but you don't, you never want to experience that in your life. Let me just tell you. <laughs> That's a, yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Gloria. Oh yeah, sure, so, sure. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit. So we just we're about to wrap up here, and we really yeah. appreciate you coming on today. I could listen to you all day. Oh. So we have um, just a couple more. We're just going to say, what can we expect to hear next on the Gloria Purvis podcast going forward? And oh, gosh. Also, so tell much. the listeners mm-hmm. where they can hear more from you and how they can follow your your latest work. Okay, so you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis. That's P-U-R-V-I-S. I'm also on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. And then you can follow me on Facebook, Gloria Purvis. Um, my page is, I have a, personal page that's that's public so anybody could see it you can just follow me um yeah i plan to be talking about the things that people want to hear in the upcoming episodes of the show lots of different um takes uh we're going to do something uh mental health and um the priesthood and seminary and i think it's actually a good thing to listen to just to realize how mental health can factor into uh seminary and what happens when we let these guys through that do have some of these personality disorders, the kind of grave spiritual damage that can be inflicted on the flock. We plan to talk about issues of sexuality. We plan to talk about the Eucharist and that the Biden mm. question, of course, um, and, and just a lot more. So I'm hoping people are able to tune in to the Gloria Purvis podcast. You should be able to find it on any platform, but I know for sure we're on Apple, we're on Google, we're on Amazon. Tune in. Spotify. And so they can just uh, search for it and subscribe. And um, if they visit, uh, I think America also has a a way to to listen. So if you Google Gloria Purvis podcast in America, uh, it'll take you to our website page and they could, it'll take you to a place you can subscribe there. So I'm hoping people will, will subscribe, will download, will listen. And also if you ever have something that you want to hear about, shoot me a DM. I'm, I'm totally open to hearing from listeners about what kind of things they'd like to hear about. So I'm not, I'm not um, just, I, I have my ear to, to what people are talking about and also what people may want to, may want to talk about. So they could do that too. Well, thank you so much, Gloria. It's been a, a pleasure to talk to you today, and oh, I know thanks. I'll be talking to you soon. Oh, yeah. We'll be continuing to work together to create a culture of life and a yep. civilization of love. That's our life's work. Yes. And, I, and I'm Amen. glad you <laughs> invited me to uh, join you in that work. I, it, it makes the load easier when you're among friends and doing mm. this together. So thank you, Kristen. Yes, thank you.
Our next segment is On the Ground and on the Hill, where we talk about whole life grassroots activism, campaigning, and legislative efforts. Democrats for Life has been very active on the Hyde Amendment. I believe you had a National Day of Action on the Hyde Amendment, a press conference prior to it, and a What's Hiding Behind Hyde event. Can you talk about these events, what the goals were, and what you accomplished? Sure. We had a fantastic uh, series of events on Hyde, trying to educate America on what exactly it means. Because just like with Roe, there's a lot of misinformation in, uh, about what Hyde does. So our Hiding Behind Hyde symposium, we had some great speakers talking about exactly what Hyde does. Um, it's a rider to the appropriations bill that prevents taxpayer funding of abortion. Uh, and then our days of action, we had uh, people in 21 cities rallying and uh, bringing attention to the fact that we need to save Hyde. It was very good. And um, our press conference was, generated some media attention that Democrats also uh, support the Hyde Amendment. So it was a really good, successful uh, series of events. And as I said, we're, we're planning some more push on Hyde and targeting those eight members who voted for Hyde previously. So the, the, uh, the fight for this is just beginning, but we're, we're going to continue. Great. Yeah. And it seems like this is going to be a big central focus here, right? Mm, yeah, it will. It will be for sure. So, Robert, I believe that you and a number of your writers at Millennial signed a letter to Congress encouraging them to enact pro-family, pro-worker policies, which is very exciting to see young activists getting involved. Do you want to talk a little bit about what was in the letter and what some of those those whole life goals were? Sure. Um, the letter, which was organized by Families Valued and their great director, Rachel Anderson, uh, called on Congress to enact paid parental and family leave noting that it's associated with reductions in neonatal, infant, and young, more, uh, young child deaths, um, which illustrates that it's a pro-woman, pro-family, pro-child policy. Um, the letter also called for workers to have paid sick days. Hopefully we've learned something from this pandemic that we've been living through um, about uh, valuing workers and people's health. The letter also calls on Congress to um, strengthen the ability of pregnant workers to ask for reasonable accommodations at work and to prioritize investment in policy research, data collection, and accountability structures that would reduce racial uh, and economic maternal health inequities and that would improve infant and maternal health. Of course, our infant and maternal mortality rates in the United States are really a national disgrace. And the inequities with them, too, make it even more so. So um, we need to really take this challenge of reducing them seriously. So the letter offers uh, a good approach to taking on some of these central issues that are really important for the whole life agenda. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, Democrats for life, we're pro-life for the whole life. And if we want to end abortion, we have to have all these other things in place to support the women and families and the, the pre-born life. So thanks for your leadership on that and uh, keep, keep going with it. Thank you everyone for listening to today's show. Whole Life Rising is brought to you by Democrats for Life of America and Millennial. We want to thank Democrats for Life for taking the lead in fundraising for the show. If you'd like to make a contribution to ensure the long-term viability of the show, please visit the Democrats for Life homepage or our show notes. And
and please subscribe to the podcast and give it a good review if you'd like to hear more. Thank you.